0: Welcome to Bovine Banter with the Penn State Extension Dairy Team. I'm Ginger Fenton, and I'm a dairy educator based in Mercer County, Pennsylvania.
1: And I'm Adrian Bergen, I'm Extension Veterinarian and Assistant Veterinarian Professor within the Department of and Biomedical Sciences at Penn State University.
0: Joining us today are Dr. Greg Roth, Emeritus Professor of Agronomy from Penn State University, and Del Voigt, who is an Extension Educator on the Field and Forage Crops team based in Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. We will be discussing considerations and practices for raising and feeding small grain forages on a dairy farm. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Roth and Dell. Could you please introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your work with Penn State Extension and the Field and Forage Crops team? Dr. Roth, would you like to start?
2: Sure. Thanks for having me on, Ginger. I was a uh, Extension Specialist in the agronomy area, focusing on uh, grain crops, and I was able to work for about 30 years on uh, different aspect, aspects of grain crops with some emphasis on uh, forage quality for uh, the dairy on corn silage and uh, also the small grain crops that we're gonna talk about today. I'm Dale Voigt. I'm based in Leavening County.
3: And um, I basically my career, just working with the local farmers, we have about 350 dairy farms in the area and so forages are big and so naturally as a county agent here um i had to basically get trained up on these forages through greg and over time uh seeing our alfalfa acres kind of switch over from alfalfa back to the uh, small grain silage so um hopefully we can all learn today throughout it and thanks for having me on ginger
1: so what about mixing different species with rye or triticale? Is that a common practice? What would be some of the main pros or, or cons of this practice? So it,
3: it, it all, that all varies by farm. Another, you can't pigeonhole everybody in one corner. So I've seen everything from, you know, a couple bushels of oats and a couple bushels of rye seeded in, in September after Labor Day and chopped in the fall. And then again in the spring, I've seen the rye grass mixtures and I think they're all a good way to boost our quality and that that spring oats you know has the ability to do the the fall and then um, if you do oats as a primary crop in the fall you can chop it once it winter kills and then you're pretty much set up for a full season in the spring and I think a lot of this in my area I see that they plant it according to what they think the weather's going to do because Usually there's that time where right before corn silage uh, we run out of old crop silage and they don't like to feed the fresh cut silage. So having some spring to kind of spread that gap on some of these larger dairy farms is, uh I've seen where they do these mixes. Um, so yeah, definitely a viable option. It's something that you should investigate and look and see what might
2: work in your area. I might just add that the oats and triticale mix is a A good one if you have a a drought stunted corn crop and don't quite have enough stuff and you want to get something else to pack in the silo in the fall, like Del's saying, you mix oats with the triticale, and then in like 60 days, you got some more forage coming in. And then on the uh, ryegrass and triticale, like Del said, that that can be a very high quality thing. And then what also opens up the door is The ryegrass will come back and you you could actually harvest a second cutting of high quality material. And then in our long season areas, then come in and and grow, uh, still grow a crop of corn. Depending on, again, depending on the individual logistics and situation, I think there are options out there.
0: So as we talk about quality, um, what are some good forage quality targets for rye or for triticale silage for protein and for NDFD? How important is high NDFD for the high producing dairy?
2: I did some looking in the dairy one records from last year and they, and they were talking about triticale and rye in that 14 to 15, 16% uh, crude protein range, 30 hour NDFDs averaging 67 to 70%, which is a lot higher than alfalfa. I'm a believer in the the value of the high NDFD, but I'm just in a, Agronomist, so I'm going to leave that up to you guys in the dairy side to uh, uh, maybe explore this in, in the in with other farmers and dairy nutritionists. But uh, I think one of the attractions is the high these high NDFD levels that uh, that we're seeing, and also these uh, relatively high uh, crude protein levels that farmers are getting with the good management. You know, so I think uh, I think something like 15 to 16 percent uh, protein and pretty high NDFD is is what our farmers are achieving, and that's contributing to the uh, you know, success of this uh, practice.
1: So switching gears a little bit, Greg, you have had a question about spring manure use. Um, how late can you manure the rye or the cheetah cattle in the spring and still harvest without having any health, hurt issues in the farm?
2: Thank you, Adrian, that's a great question. I'm honored to have a veterinarian ask me herd health questions like that. No, Uh, it's just a question. It's a kind of question guys like Dell and I have gotten. And uh, it makes me cringe a little bit if you end up in a situation where manure spreading in the spring has gotten delayed and you really want to get that manure out on these forages. I think so. I really don't have a good answer on how late you can do it. But once the small grains, I guess, in April start, getting some erect growth and get more than six inches tall, you know, I guess I might I might start backing off from putting manure on and save that manure for the corn crop, which is coming pretty soon, and uh, use some nitrogen to, to avoid contamination of the feed. Because I don't think all that manure washes off um, between April and, you know, beginning of April and the end of April, early May. You know, you probably know better than I that, this is probably not the best thing for ha- to have some, uh, you know, manure contamination. And again, maybe this is something you could, you know, touch base with, uh, other folks on the, uh, in the podcast, uh, later on what they, what they do, what their guidelines are, but, uh, it's something to consider. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I think that uh, a lot of dairies have gone to top dressing some nitrogen in the spring rather than relying on manure for the spring nitrogen.
0: How does the winter small grain corn silage system impact nutrient management and what should you be on the lookout for?
3: Well, I think as I alluded to earlier, the potassium becomes an issue and, you know, I, I'm not in the role of, I know people buy low potassium forages in for, I guess it's dry cows, I, I'm not a dairy farmer, but I know that that's one thing that they test loads for to make sure it's low K forage. But on the same token, you can really pull out a significant amount of K. So that's something you want to keep keep in mind there. When it comes to the uptake of nutrients, um, there was a, a trial funded by Northeast SARE, and um, they were looking at Tritical that was harvested at um, 3.3 tons per acre, at average 2.4% nitrogen, 0.35% phosphorus, and 4% potassium. So that results in an uptake of um, almost 157 pounds of N, 53 pounds of P and 316 pounds of K. That is a tremendous absorption of nutrients in a short period of time. And then you're going to follow this with a silage crop. Uh, they followed it with a silage crop that got eight tons of dry matter per acre, which is not very good yield, that averaged 1% nitrogen, uh, 1% potassium, and, and a quarter percent phosphorus. And that took up 204 pounds of nitrogen, 88 pounds of phosphorus, and 211. So if you add those together, you get a whopping 360 pounds of N pulled out of the ground, 141 pounds of phosphorus and 527 pounds of K. So that, that should hit you right between the eyes that you've got to watch it. And the K is going to be the one that comes get you. I just had a guy the other day that had two cuttings of the ryegrass like Greg had talked to, were two good cuttings. And uh, now his corn is, is yellow because of K deficiency. So yes, there are pitfalls when you look at this. And I know everybody likes to talk about the nitrogen issue, but I look at it on the whole agronomic side and you got to put all those pieces together. So that's a tremendous amount. Just keep that in mind that this your challenge is going to be managing those nutrients. In the positive light, <clears throat> I have farmers at Rent Ground that was previously poultry farms that they have K P and K levels. I've seen K levels over Fourteen percent on the CEC, and that's uh, that's extremely high. Phosphorus in that twelve hundred parts per million, and in those kind of fields, uh, this is a great method to reduce and drop that down fairly quickly. So, uh, so it's there's not just it's not negative. There's also positives to utilize in the crop in that way.
1: That's very interesting. So, are there any other concerns about the nutrient management aspect of this system?
2: Yeah. There, one concern I come across lately is that uh, this year nitrogen costs are very high for farmers, and uh, I've been talking to some of my friends. You know, back in the old days, dairy farms had four years of corn and four years of alfalfa, and they really didn't need that much nitrogen because uh, uh, the corn following the alfalfa didn't mean need much nitrogen, and the uh, the manure they had they concentrated on the two years of corn that that uh, was following corn, so. Uh, wasn't that big of a need. Now that we've taken a lot of alfalfa out of the system, the corn small grain system, as Dell just talked about, is taking up a lot of nitrogen. And as we've been alluding to it, sometimes it can't meet, the manure alone can't meet uh, nitrogen and potassium requirements. So uh, uh, I did some calculations. If you had 100 acres, for example, of alfalfa that yielded 5 tons this would be similar to Lebanon County, I guess, a 20% protein, just joking there, that produced about 32,000 pounds of N, and then uh, you can get a nitrogen credit from an, another 3,000 pounds of N on, on subsequent corn acres I was talking about. So it'd be 100 acres of alfalfa on a farm would be producing like 35,000 pounds of uh, nitrogen uh, that we're not doing anymore. I know there's some interest in sort of reducing the carbon footprint of our dairies, and a big part of the carbon footprint is nitrogen fertilizer. Um, so it might be something we revisit. I guess in the short term, some folks are talking about let's try to be let's try to do what we can to be more get more nitrogen out of the manure, possibly by injecting it or delaying the application uh, later in the fall or something like that. To, uh, to try to reduce this problem a little bit. So I realize it's a c- successful system. I'm a big fan of it and all that, but we sort of took out a big machine out of the system that was making a lot of on-farm nitrogen. And depending on where things go in the future, that could be a problem.
0: Um, let's also talk about some other small <laughs> grains like winter barley. How is it managed and what role does it play?
3: So winter barley is um, advantageous because it's similar To corn and its analysis, so that's one of the benefits. Probably one of the bigger benefits from a logistics is you get a clear day and it's soft dough stage, and you can chop and pack all at one time. That's a huge thing. I have some growers that are doing that, and they're pretty happy with the results of it. Um, They are using uh, the nominee valor type varieties that are on list, so that uh, that's another key part of the of, of managing it. But yeah, so that it does give you that versatility to put it after um, a soybean crop or a corn crop. And um, and then that would chop similar to uh, triticale and rye, time-wise, and probably the biggest advantage is that direct
1: chop. Dale and Gray, you both mentioned spring oats in this conversation. Uh, is this another common small grain? And if so, how is it managed
2: and where does it fit in? Spring oats is that is is great forage option, and it, it fits in a couple places. It could be planted in the spring or the late summer. Late summer is ideal. It's been done and worked on for a number of years. Basically, if you can have some access to small grain acres, like wheat acres that we have in Pennsylvania, um, you could plant oats in late summer, grow in the uh, fall, and if you can harvest them before they head out. Uh, You can make, you know, very high quality, good protein and high fiber digestibility. One of the cool things about oats is that because they're growing and maturing in days that are getting shorter and cooler, the the maturity is not advancing rapidly like it does with our winter crops that are growing in the spring when the days are getting longer and warmer. So they'll sit there. The, The challenge can be, is that getting sometimes if the crop gets planted a little on the late side, it could be a little bit hard to to get dry in the fall. So sometimes, so sometimes it could be you know harvested a little bit wet uh, in if, if it drags into November. November in Pennsylvania is often cloudy and cool. One thing I think uh, Dell has seen this too in his area. I've seen it up here in, in central Pennsylvania. Some oat varieties get a rust disease, a crown rust and uh that can in the fall is the fall is an especially bad time with the you know humid mornings that we have and cool humid mornings to to get rust on oats so if you have a susceptible variety it might it might do okay in the spring but in the fall it it might get hammered and Dell, you you told me once that uh farmers were actually spraying fungicide on oats in the fall that's something we'd rather not be doing so I think the seed industry is start is uh this is another example where the seed industry is coming out with rust resistant and also maybe t- some taller forage varieties that work better in this system so oats can be a, a great forage crop uh, especially if again in one of those years where it, you know it doesn't rain that much in the summer our corn silage is short we need more forage in the past we've written a lot of articles like this is the time to hit up your neighbor who has wheat acres up here in central pennsylvania where we're not double cropping put a put some oats in put a coat of manure and and grow some uh grow some great forage. Uh, oats has been uh you know coming into its own here it's it's maybe not the uh maybe not uh as widely recognized as the wheat and uh as the uh rye but it's uh it's really filled the gaps with uh, some good yield and quality.
0: Well, you both have shared a tremendous amount of useful information today. As we start to wrap up, can you share what your takeaway message is for dairy producers about utilizing small grain forages on their farms?
3: Well, I would think that if they haven't done this already in some shape or form that you would start out small Work with your nu- nutritionist to come up with a plan there. Um, follow our agronomy guide recommendations that uh, are available. And, and I would at least venture into this with um, some advice from, from us extension folks or crop consultant seedsmen uh, to get started. And then from there, I think we covered some of the basics, some tactics that might be able to be used to help you through the, um, to make sure you, you get what you're desiring. And I would think that the other part of it is critical is that it always comes down to that harvest timing with rain and other things that can happen. So therefore picking your varieties out that work so that you know that in that time, that window in, in late May, that it's going to work in that environment, whether that's triticale, triticale or the rye, um, even wheat or barley,
2: whatever works in that window, that's where I would encourage growers to look at me doing. I guess I would say it's exciting to see how these crops have changed in the last 10 years as, as, uh, farmers and uh, our, our agronomy colleagues have really sharpened their management. And in a lot of areas, it's becoming a really consistent high quality forage. And I think the, uh, nutritionists and veterinarians even have been able to uh, put these into high performance cattle rations and, and making it work. And by spe- kind of like Dell's saying, by focusing not just on harvesting a cover crop, but specifically managing these for high quality forage and with uh, improved varieties and detailed management and harvesting procedures I think, we're, I think we've really made some progress I see, and I see more progress coming in the future. And I also feel that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a key part of this is figuring out the logistics because it's often the time on a dairy farm where somebody is chopping triticale, spreading manure and planting corn, you know, all in the same week. So you've got to figure out how you're going to get all that done on a timely basis. But a lot of our folks are doing it. So uh, they figured out how to make that logistics work through custom operators, different varieties, and getting the machinery they need to get the job done. So,
1: I echo Ginger. This has been very informative. Any parting thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners?
2: I'll just finish by saying you know we just scratched the surface on a lot of these things and. We didn't get much into, you know, management of mixtures, details on specific varieties, harvesting procedures, uh, and maybe you guys can cover some of that in subsequent podcasts, utilization on the farm and things like that. But I I, I think it's, I'll commend you guys for getting into this because I think it's a really exciting part of uh, uh, crop management that our, our dairy farmers and agronomists are doing a great job on these days. I'll just say that I
3: think that you know we cover we did cover a lot of things but the one thing I will mention that I'm a little I get pretty passionate about is the spreading the manure evenly because most of these small grain silage fields that I walk every spring you get these huge waves and I like to see a tabletop so that if it's going to be a boot stage that the whole field is at boot stage and I think that if you did some science on it, it would probably work out to the feed outside as well, but spreading that manure evenly. And the other, other parting comment is when you put winter manure onto these grains and your wheel traffic with a custom guy, and he's going in and out of that field, all different directions, he can wipe out 30, 40% of that crop Uh, reduce its yield significantly just because of the 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 wheel tracks and so I think um, like Greg said earlier that's another thing I will put also my my two cents on that if you can avoid that because you know you get that frosty cold morning and then they go out and spread and it snaps those off and sets it back so that would be my two things is you know utilize that manure as a fertilizer and get it on nice and even get a tabletop and I think the forges as result will respond.
0: Well, thank you, Dell and Dr. Roth for talking to us today, and thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any further questions regarding this topic, you can email me at gdc3 at psu.edu or Dr. Berrigan at axb779 at psu.edu. Don't forget to tune in next Tuesday when Dr. Lisa Holden will discuss the use of double cropping on dairy farms with researcher Dr. Heather Karsten and dairy producer Jim Harbaugh.